Bitcoiners, welcome to another episode of FedWatch. I'm here with Ansel, and man, I'm just blown away by the caliber of this conversation. We just sat down with Dylan LeClaire, 20-year-old stud on the Bitcoin Magazine team, and we talked the long-term debt cycle, we talked Bitcoin, we talked you know, what we can expect from the global macro economy in the next few years. Uh, Ansel, what was your take on this conversation? Oh, it, it was great. He is, like you said, very young. I don't, I don't think that's super important. What I think is important is that he is new to economics and he got into economics through Bitcoin and now he gets it. He totally gets it. And he's starting to make some insights and he's starting to write some good content out there. And I think that the, this is the type of person we need in Bitcoin. And yeah, I had a fun i had a lot of fun talking to him yeah it is really impressive to see you know dylan coming into bitcoin and economics with a very open mind and really fast tracking you could call it like 35 years of education and experience in two years and you know me personally like bitcoin has been the biggest leverage point of my personal finance education and my education in macro and uh you know seeing you know someone younger take it to the next level of understanding is it's so bullish and it makes me optimistic for the youth growing up in a bitcoin world yeah, we did get into some of the inflation deflation uh, debate a little bit. We, uh, you push back a little bit on him, and and uh, he, I, I think that he has a little bit further to go with kind of connecting some of those dots. But uh, no, I thought it was it was brilliant conversation. Awesome. Well, I know you guys are going to enjoy this one, but before we get into it, I want to tell you guys about Bitcoin 2021, the biggest, baddest, and best Bitcoin conference in history. Uh, it's going to be over 10,000 people in Miami. We have over 10,000 tickets sold, uh, over 1,500 whale night tickets sold. Um, this event is going to be a monster. Two after-party venues just to fit all of you crazy, rowdy Bitcoiners in there. And the speaker list is absolutely off the charts. Every single Bitcoiner, the lovers and the haters of the conference are going to be in Miami. And I think that that just shows you know, how this is the shelling point for Bitcoin energy in the world this year and and in June and in America, Miami, the city is is one of the, the greatest shelling points of freedom. So um, it is really beautiful to see this amazing event unfold. It is really exciting to get to meet Ansel, uh, my co-host and, uh, and uh, a long-term mentor of mine uh, in person. And I'm just so, so hyped to be there. You all can be there as well. Go to b.tc forward slash conference and, uh, Go get your ticket today. Uh, you can get your ticket at a 10% discount if you use promo code Satoshi. Tickets are quite expensive. As I said, we're pretty much sold out as it is. So if you want to get your ticket at this point, uh, you you really got to pay for it. But you can save $400 in addition to that 10% if you pay with Bitcoin. We do not want your fiat. We want SATs. And we are willing to give quite the steep discount to get those SATs. On top of that, we're making it as easy as possible for you, the listener and future attendee, to get that discount, paying with SAS, us receiving SAS, but you actually only spending fiat. The way we do that is with MoonPay. MoonPay is one of the sponsors of the conference, and they have implemented their widget into our tickets page. So you can take your debit card, you can run it or your credit card, and you can run it on MoonPay. You can even use Apple Pay, Google Pay, any of those. You can run it on MoonPay, spend your fiat, 
send that Bitcoin to us and you get a Bitcoin 2021 ticket at a significant discount. Uh, so y'all, there is no reason not to get that cheap BTC ticket. There's no reason not to pay us in BTC. And there's no reason not to use MoonPay because they're going to be giving you that discounted ticket for free. They're not even going to charge you for uh, for that transaction when you use the widget on the b.tc forward slash conference website. Um, that's enough shilling from me. Let's get into this podcast. Uh, and I am just so excited about this conversation with Dylan LeClaire. Bitcoiners, welcome back to another episode of FedWatch. I'm sitting here with Ansel and we have another Bitcoin Magazine stud on the show, my guy, Dylan LeClaire. Welcome to FedWatch. Thanks for having me on, guys. Happy to come on. So, Dylan, you've been doing some fantastic work for Bitcoin Magazine and just in the Bitcoin space in general. Uh, I think, you know, your your kind of profile has blown up on Bitcoin Twitter and people have really started to get excited about the content and work that you're putting out. And it seems like the catalyst for that was this article that you published a couple of weeks ago on Bitcoin Magazine, uh, the end of the long-term debt cycle and Bitcoin. Um, I thought it was an absolutely fantastic article uh, and just kind of seeing you put it together from, uh, you know, backstage and then all the way to the, the actual production of it. Um, it was really, really amazing to see. Um, I guess, why don't we just start off the show by introducing yourself, maybe talk a little bit about where you came from and how you got into Bitcoin, and uh, and then we can talk about this article. Yeah, sweet. Um, so I, I kind of stumbled upon Bitcoin uh, about two years ago, uh, maybe maybe a little bit longer than that. Um, just kind of was trying to figure it out. Um, I've always been a numbers guy, but I just, um, I figured finance was kind of the way that I was going to go. Um, so I started reading a lot of um, like value investing books and frameworks um, and just trying to figure out like markets in general, not, not like Bitcoin or, um, you know, crypto or what, um, whatnot. And so um, I did, I did a lot of reading. Um, I read like the intelligent investor and like a bunch of other stuff. And I was listening to a lot of podcasts with, especially like Preston's podcast. Um, great. Um, and he started, he started digging a little bit into like macro frameworks and whatnot. Um, and it took me a little bit, but what I came to the conclusion um, of like after a short while was that everything was kind of being driven, um, you know, equities, real estate, uh, Bitcoin, as I started to dig into it, um, everything is kind of being driven by this, by this like macro landscape um, and central bank liquidity and all this stuff. Um, where like individual companies, um, I mean, you can stock pick all day, but uh, this this big picture is what really matters. So I did, um, you know, I hopped on Twitter and was just kind of lurking for a while, learning. Um, I read a lot. I read this piece that I, I just wrote um, was inspired because I, I read uh, Ray Dalio's Principles for Navigating Big Debt Crises. And he, he has a bunch of case studies and, and archetypes and all that. And it it's really, really good. Um, there's also a 30 minute video called, uh, how the economic machine works, um, which I think everyone should go watch. It's really fantastic. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of like the, the macro landscape. And, and then with, you know, regards to Bitcoin, I think everyone has their own rabbit hole journey, but, um, that's happened for me and I've kind of been obsessed with it for the last year or two, especially. So, you know, and, uh, now I'm here. So yeah, so I mean, I feel like you obviously you've done a lot of research. Maybe you had the time to do the research, but 
uh, your kind of understanding of the big picture and macro is really, really well formed. Can you kind of talk a little bit about like, maybe like how you got to that point mentally and trying to like understand, you know, what is happening? Because I mean, even 50 year olds managing millions and millions of dollars don't seem to kind of have a grasp of the big picture like, you know, what you're kind of like articulating in this and other content that you're putting out? Yeah, um, I think just like one of my best attributes is just like kind of figuring out who who knows what they're talking about and who doesn't or like, I guess like, um, yeah, just like, you know, cycling or filtering out like noise um, from Signal. And so Twitter and just like, you know, I guess like the internet itself is is such a great resource and everything's out there for free. Um, and, and I'm just a naturally very curious person. So um, I just, you know, there's this infinite rabbit hole in Bitcoin, but really, you know, in, in anything investing or any, any subject field. So, um, I really just kind of dug deep and, and trying to understand what's, what's happening, um, with, with rates and central banks and the dollar and, and these, these cycles and, and like why a recession happens or why there's an expansion. Like, I think a lot of people just kind of like brush it off. Like there is just these things happen, you know, and, and especially like the politicians, it's always like about keeping it to the lowest common denominator, right? Like it's never, there's never any like, oh, the financial crisis happened because of, and it's just a one sentence response. But um, a lot of these things are super, like are very systematic. So I just was, you know, naturally really curious um, and tried to get to the bottom of things, which has led me to to where I'm at now and and, and putting these things together to try to formulate my thoughts. Okay. And my last question before we get into uh, the long-term and short-term debt cycles, but like, what about Bitcoin kind of caught your eye, right? Like, you know, I feel like Bitcoin is like this big idea. Yeah. A lot of young people are getting into it, but personally for you, like when you kind of going on this journey, discovered Bitcoin, can you talk about like, you know, your, I guess your relationship with Bitcoin and how it's evolved? Yeah. So um, I kind of, I was aware of like, and this is like, this sounds pretty cringe, but like I was aware of like cryptocurrencies uh, in, in 2017 when I had some friends that were kind of speculating or whatnot. Um, and so as I, as I turned 18, um, I decided like, Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start, you know, making my money work for me. And so I started to do a little bit of digging. Um, and like I said, I was, I was present on Twitter and, and luckily I kind of found the, the maximalist crowd pretty early. Um, so I did some reading, like I read like the bullish case for Bitcoin and the Bitcoin standard and, and found like this niche, like Austrian economics rabbit hole. That's like, you know, not many people ever dig into, um, and about like monetary competition and the history of money and stuff. That's like that you're not taught in a finance 101 course or econ 101, which was like up until last year, I, I, I was, uh, studying economics in, in college for a year, uh, and it was Keynesian economics. So none of the stuff you learn. Um, and it really just kind of challenged a lot of preconceived notions that I had, but being an 18, 19 year old, I didn't have a, a lifetime of belief and, and tr- I guess like faith in, in any incumbent system. I really, I didn't even know what I didn't know. So I kind of had an open mind to something and, um, Bitcoin, when you approach it from just a first principle standpoint, um, it, it makes a lot of sense. And whereas, you know, this, this, uh, the incumbent system in a lot of ways doesn't. So, yeah, I think that's like the concise answer. Well, I got, I have a question um, regarding Bitcoin Magazine. I think it's really great that Bitcoin Magazine is, has, is uh, open door for really great 
young, new content producers. Um, it's almost like, you know, a team that has these walk-on athletes, you know, that they can always tap into the, the people that came up on their content and now are producing content. I think that's great. What has your experience been with Bitcoin Magazine specifically? And phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a great way to describe it. Like, you know, I'm a walk-on athlete and CK recruited me from, you know, the, like the back of a gym that no one else was watching. Um, yeah, it's, it's awesome. I think they're, the Bitcoin magazine is a great platform just for, for anybody that wants to, to share their thoughts about Bitcoin or, you know, anything like regarding sovereignty or economics or, um, you know, uh, privacy or free speech in the digital age, like all this stuff. Um, you know, we want to be that platform and, and, um, up until recently, and I still am helping out there. Um, with, like I was, I was really, my main focus was like helping people like outside contributors, publish content, um, which is kind of how I got my start. It wasn't like I didn't start doing full on content. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's great that we just, you know, there's just this hive mind of people around the world that are passionate about this and are, you know, just want to find truth. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's a really beautiful thing. Just a, a market of ideas. All right. Jumping into the article then on, you start off by talking about the cyclicality or cyclicity of debt. So, uh, can you explain like short-term versus long-term, uh, debt cycles, like specific, th this would be like fit into a Ray Dalio framework, right? Yeah. And that's, that's kind of what I try to do in the piece is, um, I, I took his, uh, like the, his first book, it's in a series, The Principles for Navigating Big Debt Crises. I took his first book um, and I, I tried to break it down um, and use a lot of the, the concepts that he articulated. So the cyclicity of debt um, is it, like in the most basic sense, debt, when you're borrowing, you're borrowing from a lender, but you're also borrowing from your future self. You're borrowing from your productivity. And, and if that debt's used to um, increase your income or your, your productivity, um, it's a good thing. And, and you can you have an increased ability to pay it back in the future. But if it doesn't, um, if that debt is used for consumption or just uh, malinvestment, um, now you're you're basically um, you have a contract where you have to sell away your your future productivity and output. Um, and so this this is true at like an individual level as well as like a, a macroeconomic level. Um, and so we, naturally, because debt is is cyclical. Um, you see this, you see these, these long, these large cycles over multi-year, multi-decade uh, timeframes. Um, and, and that can kind of be seen with like interest rates um, over the short and long term. So like, I guess the short-term debt cycle would be what most people think of as like the boom and bust cycle or the business cycle. Um, and it's like, you know, about every 10 years, at least recently. Um, and it's, there's, it's basically that, Credit uh, credit is used to to finance investment, consumption, um, and all this stuff across across an economy. Our our monetary system is a is a debt based monetary system. Money is created and destroyed through debt. Um, and so when this like the lending naturally um, it's it's used for product productive investment, but there is speculative um, activity that occurs. There is now investment, and and over time, over over years, over decades, um, the debt builds up, uh, and there, there has to be, I guess, you know, there's an upswing and there has to be a downswing. And so the debt has to be paid back. Uh, and this is, you know, on, on a decade uh, timeframe or a short-term timeframe, that's like the short-term debt cycle. Um, and you can see, if you just look at the interest rate chart, there's these 
these uh, peaks and troughs um, in short-term rates. Um, and I have that later in the piece. It's like from 2000 to 2006 and then, um, yeah, 2008 and then uh, just recently in, in 2020. Um, and over time, these these cycles, uh, and especially since 1981, it's just basically lower lows in, in interest rates. Whereas with every cycle, uh, with every boom and bust, with every um, new expansion in credit, uh, there's more debt in the system. Um, and and I guess new sectors in the economy are, are more over indebted than they've ever become, which makes it um, that much harder, which is why rates continue to go lower and lower and lower. Uh, and when you get to the zero lower bound, that basically um, marks, well, I mean, there's not, there's not too many, like, there's not too much precedent here, but basically ends uh, marks the end of the long-term debt cycle. Yeah, I think the the short-term one people kind of understand is the business cycle. That one makes yeah. sense. But the long-term one is really hard for humans with our shorter time time uh, lifespans or whatever of, say, 70, 80 years. That's about how long one of these time these long-term debt cycles will happen. And so no one really alive uh, or active in I the market today there. was active in the market back in the 30s, say. So it's, uh, you know, we have this, I don't know, in in a company you call like institutional knowledge. I don't know what you would call it like in a market. The, the market-based knowledge is gone uh, by that time that comes around. What I think is really interesting about this cycle in particular, though, is that we are on a pure credit-based system. There is no uh, gold backing it up. Uh, so I do think that, I, I don't know, we're, we're in uncharted waters. Uh, I don't know even where we would go back in history to see something that correlated to this, where there is pure credit-based money. Yeah. Do, do you like have any in, idea on that? In the, in the 30s, like uh, you nailed it, in the 30s um, or you know, after the Great Depression, um, that was the, basically the end of the long-term debt cycle um, there and and countries across the world um, basically all had the zero lower bound and and the way that they devalued out of it the way that they I guess es- escaped the the debt crises was they devalued against gold so um, there was executive order sixty one hundred two they took everybody's gold and then they immediately re- immediately revalued it higher which is essentially just lowering the debt burden in real terms um, and so that kind of that basically allowed um, them to 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 get out of it in a, in a real, uh, basis. Um, and then there was, you know, the Bretton Woods, uh, agreement in, in 1944, but now, yeah, it's, it's pure credit. Um, and, um, the, the more debt, you know, that builds in the system, the less likelihood that it's ever going to be paid back. And so they have to continue to pump in liquidity and there's going to continue to be these just reinflations. And then these, these huge deleveraging events, which I don't think are going to go away. I think it's going to be kind of rocky the whole, whole way uh down or or up i guess (laughs) yeah one of the things that i just think about all the time is that in the back in the past when we had commodity money uh there was some backstop to the deflationary spiral right that when the bad debts would get liquidated it would eventually stop at the backing the gold but today there is no backing so it it technically could go to zero money supply and That's that's extreme. It's it's a different uh, scenario because if you were a central banker, say in uh, the 30s, then you know that okay, well, gold has our back. Yeah. Uh, but today you don't. You can't say that. And so 
they're extremely scared. And that's why we see the same bailouts. That's why they continue to do the QE. They continue to do all this stuff because they're, they can't let it reset. Yeah. They don't have a choice. Like, yeah. um, and, and that's the thing is that with the credit-based system, um, everything's just basically a claim and the whole system is just kind of like levered IOUs on top of each other. And so when there is these um, deflationary deleveragings, um, it's, it's kind of like, the the Brent Johnson thesis is like you know the the like being bullish on the dollar and the Dixie against against all these other currencies. It's that there's so much dollar debt around the world and especially offshore, um, which which I didn't really even mention in the piece. Uh, and there's just not enough like baseline dollars. There's not enough. Um, the, the system's basically insolvent. And so um, there's going to be these times when the the game of musical chairs ends and everybody's scrambling to get you know, these dollars and the system's so over indebted that there isn't enough. And it's just this, this spiral on the way down. And as a central banker, you, you don't have really any choice besides, you know, to continue just to or attempt to kick the can. And so in this event and, and uh, Greg Foss, um, who you guys had on, I believe he has like this credit yeah. default swap uh, thesis where mm-hmm. basically saying um, in these deflationary deleveragings, um, the IOUs you have and, and the, the claims on, on purchasing power and, and the assets that you think you have, well, if all the money is, is destroyed, um, well, you don't really have anything. So you want to have something that has no counterparty risk, that's liquid, that's global. And there's really, there's really only one asset that you can, that you can hold uh, in, in today's world. You can hold gold, but um, I don't really know many people that prefer a monetary metal in the digital age, which is, you know, which is where Bitcoin comes in. Um, and it's really just the perfect solution to to all of this madness. Excellent. Christian, do you got something you want me to keep rolling? Keep it rolling, guys. <laughs> all right. Um, yeah, this uh, so then in the piece, you go into the monetary policy responses, like we were just talking ki- kicking the can down the road and all that. Uh, so interest rates, QE, stimulus, where do you want to start? Uh, what's your favorite? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's just um, it's kind of like an order, right? So, um, so like central banks, as long as they have interest rates to play with, um, they're, they're happy to do that. And they can kind of manage the, these, these credit cycles. Like um, I think the fiat monetary system and just like pure credit, no commodity backing, no gold back. Um, it was doomed to fail from the start, but um, in the seventies, there was this, this kind of inflationary period and starting from, uh, and then in 81 rates at 20%, um, with uh, Volcker coming in and raising everything up, basically they had a lot of room to play with. They had these this huge lever that they could continue to, um, if the you know inflation ran hot, they could raise rates. If if you know the economy needed a kickstart, they could they could lower rates. Um, and there was still this there was still a lot of room to I guess like yeah play around. Um, now over the course of a bunch of short term debt cycles, rates have have made their way uh, to the zero lower bound where we hit it in 08. And now um, after 12 years, almost they they couldn't even get rates to three percent, um, and so yeah, that's kind of where QE has to come in because um, there is no you know there is no uh, no more room for the central banks to come in and and stimulate. So yeah, I I don't do you want me to like just go through it or do you want to ask questions on that or well. Really not in charge of interest rates. Uh, they're in charge of the Fed funds rate, I guess you could say. But um, there's been studies done where they like, okay, so Greenspan 
lowered the Fed funds rate by half a percent or 50 basis points. Let's watch what happens with the FOMC or the, you know, like the, the open market operations. And they really didn't do anything. All they did was they talked it down 50 basis yeah. points or talked it up 50 basis points. There was no like actual repo or reverse repo going on to push the uh, interest rate up and down. Um, and now it's like to the point where they can try to talk it up. Like you said, they couldn't even get over 3% because once they got up that high, uh, you know, their words didn't matter. And so yeah. it, then we had a, a, a flash crash basically. So um, I don't know. Do you want to talk about that? Do you think that they are in charge of the interest rates or are they kind of uh, jawboning it higher and lower? I, I think, I mean, there's definitely, especially recently, there's, it's a lot of jawboning, like the, the Fed, um, I mean, they ultimately like are in control. And if the Fed, you know, raise rates tomorrow to 2%, everything would tank. So that they, I mean, they do have, I guess, a, a big red button where they ultimately are in control um, of this, of this monetary and financial system. But um, yeah, I, I think while the market's kind of, you know, is the one that's, it's, pushing around the fed at least over the last decade or two right um like powell they're they've consistently changed course um both the fed the ecb um the bank of japan even i mean they they, they say one thing and the markets tank and really you know basically kind of challenge them and say all right well and and a lot of times they have to reverse course um so yeah i i think they're going to continue to do a bunch of QE. They're going to continue um, to talk about, to talk about, uh, you know, like bond yields and, and short and long-term rates. But um, I think, I think the kind of the, the curtain over everybody's eyes about inflation um, and, you know, who's, who's signing up for these, these long dated contracts that are, you know, promising a nominal 2% yield. I, I don't think that, I don't think that lasts for, you know, 30 years or, <laughs> or whatever the duration is. I think that the point that you just made is maybe where Ansel and I kind of disagree uh, with the concept that you're pushing. But generally speaking, like I would push back and say that the Fed and no other central bank actually controls the system. Like this is a free market system. It's a shitty, opaque free market system that has a bunch of areas for manipulation. But ultimately, like they are not in control of the global economy. The global economy is way too complicated of a system for them to grok and for them to, you know, manage in any reasonable way, right? So really what they're doing is they're just like, they're blind, they're looking around, they're feeling around, and they're just pulling on shit. And they're doing impression management, like you mentioned, you know, job owning it. Uh, they're trying to get people to believe that they control it. They're trying to get people to, you know, act in the way that they are forecasting, right? Um, but ultimately, the actual levers aren't there, right? And when they do do QE, when they do do stimulus, what they're doing is they're just fucking with the natural orders of things. They're destroying supply chains. They're just like, you know, effectively creating chaos. Um, so I guess, what do you take of, what do you make of that take? Yeah, I, th I think there's definitely some truth to the fact that markets are like the tail that's wagging the dog. Like the the Fed is, or all these central banks. I mean, they they're the ones that are setting rates, but um, markets. Is, I mean, and the the credit markets, the bond markets are are really in charge. You know, if if the market 
starts to sniff out that inflation isn't 2% or 3%, um, and you know, yields start spiking, like the Fed could buy up the entire bond market, but they don't want to. Um, and, and, and same on the way down. Um, so I, yeah, I do, I do kind of agree that there's, there's an illusion of control, but especially, um, as, as rates have been pushed lower and lower and debts continue to build the markets, the markets are in control and the, and the fed and all the central banks and central bankers are really just kind of in damage control. What's your take on, uh, the stimulus then? So that's, that's the monetary policy. Uh, what about the fiscal policy side? What did you write in your piece there? Yeah, so um, uh, the fiscal policy, and it's like I guess today um, it would be called like maybe mon- modern monetary theory. The fact that uh, fiscal can just be financed by by um, central banks um, buying up the debt. Um, that's that's kind of in the um, it, well, it's kind of a blend of the second and third forms of monetary policy that that Dalio outlined, um, and that's just. Because um, over the course of these long-term debt cycles, uh, wealth becomes kind of polarized, um, and and debt and then solvencies build. So I guess all of all of this leverage and and all of it goes onto the government balance sheets, and they just decide, all right, well, we're just gonna sh- just start throwing money. Um, and so these are you know in the form of welfare programs, I guess like stimulus checks, um, infrastructure programs. It can be really whatever they want to call it, but it's essentially just um, getting money out into the system and into people's hands because they don't really have any, um, especially the the middle to lower class. Is this what we're seeing today? Yeah, um, I mean, the, the talks of more and more stimulus and and every few months, another trillion here, another, like, I mean, people are, are just desensitized to a, a trillion dollar stimulus package without even understanding like the, how much money a trillion dollars is. Um, that's half of Apple. That's Microsoft, just like that. Zeros. Yeah, it's it's insane. Um, And so they have to. um, If there's not ever more stimulus and liquidity, especially in the markets, especially now that you know the entire like um, all of America or really the world's savings accounts, they're not people aren't saving in in the currency. They're saving in the the bond markets, the stock markets. They're saving in their their pensions, right? Like people's retirements are the equity in their in their house, their real estate, it's stock market indexes, it's all passive flows. And so if there's if they stop doing, you know, these these um, uh, Congress uh, stimulus packages, if they stop pumping liquidity into the system, both on the fiscal side and the monetary side, there's going to be a credit contraction. And, and once it gets going, like we talked about earlier, basically, it goes to zero if they don't intervene, like, Money is destroyed, and there's there's so much there's so many obligations and promises in the system, and there's not even close to enough money to, um, I guess, you know, to to make up for all of those obligations, and it's just it's this downward uh, reinforcing spiral, and uh, so yeah, they're they're really trapped. But you know, the the policymakers and all that want to you know pretend that they're being generous or that they're doing it like, you know, just to to be to be nice or I don't know. Yeah, what you said there, one little piece in there about the uh, different obligations, like the chain of custody of some of these assets, like a, a treasury can have between, I think they, the Fed came out with a study, it was like between six and 20 owners of that yeah. treasury. And it's all collateralized and it's all promised to every single one. Yeah, and just imagine when the Fed 
quote unquote buys one of the treasuries off the market, they have to kind of collapse that whole chain, right? Because yeah. that, that treasury goes onto the Fed's balance sheet. And that, that's extremely, to, in my mind, that's extremely deflationary and retards the growth of the economy. So uh, all of these policy, this monetary policy, and uh, fiscal policy, it actually handicaps the economy so it cannot grow in the future. Right. And so you continually yeah. get diminishing marginal returns yeah. on all these things until something has to happen. And I guess the Fed, I, my, what I think is the Fed can kick the can to 0% growth. It can kick the can, maybe even slightly decline, uh, like a 1% contraction for 20 years, just like Japan has done. Japan has been able to kick the can for 30 years. Um, they buy up most of their treasure, their, the JGBs, and they buy up most of the stock market and stuff. But uh, they've been able to kick the can for 30 years. And I think the Fed would be able to do that if it wasn't for Bitcoin, because yeah. Bitcoin gives that alternative to jump out of the system. What What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I, I agree 100%. Um, I think like, so one of the things that uh, has been interesting the past year is like the, the prevalence of like the money printer go burr meme. And that's like, I think it's it's very simplistic, but that's not actually what's happening. Um, all of like all of the stimulus, all of you know the the printing of money, it's just it's just more and more debt, and so ultimately that that is deflationary because that's going to have to be paid back. It feels inflationary because markets are up, everything's going up. It's more it's more of the same. It's more credit expansion, but ultimately is that has to be repaid, and it's deflationary in the fact that um, yeah it there's going to be, you know, the piper is going to have to be paid, which, um, you know, it, we'll see with these, these short-term cycles. So everything right now is, is on the way up. Real estate is on the way up. Bitcoin on the way up. It's all just a form of leverage. And so I think um, if if the Fed keeps rates at zero, if they continue to to inject hundreds of billions of, uh, like of uh, dollars into the bond markets a month, um, with Bitcoin now, there is, there's monetary competition. So what you're seeing, Sailor says, all right, I'll call your bluff. I'm going to issue a billion dollars yeah. in convertible notes. I'm going to buy Bitcoin at 0%. Um, I'll give some equity optionality. So I literally am not even paying interest for seven years, and I can pay back a billion dollars in, in 2027. And so, and, and MicroStrategy is a really small company, and a billion dollars is like a drop in the bucket. It's nothing. But um, there's this reality that as more and more people and more and more institutions and entities hold Bitcoin on the asset side of their balance sheet. They also have dollar uh, fiat liabilities. And so um, that in itself is a speculative attack where they're actively choosing to not pay down their liabilities and they're acquiring a monetary asset to hold. Um, and so whether indirectly or directly, like Tesla would be, maybe be indirectly where they, they acquire Bitcoin um, while they hold dollar liabilities. But with MicroStrategy and, and I like, I mean, myself personally, other people I know, uh, debt to acquire Bitcoin, it's it's really just an economic calculation. And, and like, am I going to pay, uh, is Bitcoin going to appreciate more than 3% over the next, you know, duration of your loan or whatever the interest rate is in the duration. And if, if you think it is, then you acquire Bitcoin. And in this process, dollars are created because you're borrowing money, lending creates dollars. And in the process, you're also taking Bitcoin off the market. And so um, I think that ultimately, and we're, we're seeing it now with Bitcoin at 55,000, um, and I think we'll see it over the next decade with whatever the price is, is trading at um, and whatever happens in the incumbent monetary system, 
if the Fed keeps rates at zero, or even if it were three percent, or even if it was, you know, as long as there's there's continued easing and credit expansion, which there has to be, people are going to acquire this this monetary asset that has no counterparty risk that they can hold themselves that can't be debased, um, and they're gonna they're gonna use uh, dollar or fiat obligations to do that, and so. Um, yeah, there's just this reality that monetary uh, mediums are always in, in constant competition with each other. Um, and that's an inescapable reality. Dude, that's so well put. Um, that's great, man. I can't believe you only found Bitcoin two years ago because that was a really good summation of, I think, where the, the narrative for Bitcoin is headed. Uh, that People don't quite get that yet. I think um, that's even an expansion on uh, the... Safedine's book, the Bitcoin standard. I think what you just said there is it's even it's tying in the legit monetary policy that we see. I think Safedine's book is a little bit more theoretical or, or uh, uh, ideological of what's going on, but uh, that was really really good. I wanted to take this into second order effects because you take there you know, the story there or your uh, post there about like social unrest and populism. Um, What's your take on the current state of the United States? And maybe we could expand that to Europe in the West. Um, and do you see war coming? Do you see like, what kind of social unrest are you talking about? Yeah, I think there's, there's a large, like, um, you know, a large percent of the population that has been, that has been hurt um, by this, you know, per this last really 40 years, but um, more specifically the last like 20 years or so of asset inflation. Um, and it's really just, I guess, credit expansion where um, these people, like most people don't own any assets. And, you know, like I think there's some crazy stat, like 50 or 40% of Americans don't have a spare thousand dollars. And so um, there's just this reality that a majority or like, I guess, like half the population only has dollars and only, you know, I guess, makes their living on a, on a fixed wage. And so with all this asset inflation, with I guess CPI being stated, you know, inflation and and all of, and all this stuff being stated at one to two percent over the last decade. Meanwhile, like M two money growth is at ten percent. The equity markets are are roaring. If you've just sat on a long bond over the past 10, 20 years, you made a killing. All anyone that's held an asset, just real estate, like a lot of people, um, a lot of older people or like boomers or people that have a lot of real estate, um, specifically over the last forty years, think that they like they've made it because they're a prudent or savvy investor when it's just the reality is that discount rates have gone from 20 to zero um, over the past, over the past four, uh, four decades. So um, the rich have basically gotten richer and they've done that with just by continuing to lever up, lever up, lever up. And every time that there is this credit contraction um, central banks and the fed come in and basically uh, give them some sort of a bailout. Um, and, and not saying like that these people are bad or evil, just that's the reality is that um, more and more wealth has been kind of just polarizing in the hands of the few. Um, and the people that don't have any assets are hurt. And a lot of times they don't know why they're hurt. So the rise of, you know, increasing amounts of like Marxism and I guess like democratic socialism and, and I guess like far right, far left, all of this stuff, um, AOCs, Bernies, like these these politicians that are are you know rising in popularity, I think that's a the a second order effect of of the wealth polarization that's that's taken place. Um, yeah, 
Speaking of second order effects and, you know, the effects on society, you know, we're starting to see like the effects on individuals too, right? Uh, I think COVID has kind of presented a very unique case study where it's like almost like Weimar Germany, but everyone is stuck in their house and is getting some sort of like welfare piped into them. So they have no incentive to work. They don't have enough money to really change their lives. And they're, you know, a lot of people are incentivized to trade. You know, my retired uncle who doesn't know shit about markets, and I would not trust for one second to invest any money in any sort of like strategic way, is asking me about stocks. And I'm like, dude, you need to not be messing around this market. And guess what? I was wrong because that was a freaking like 35% ago on the SP. So, like, he bought Dogecoin. I mean, it would have done well for him. He did. And, and to, to some degree, like literally anything that is not the dollar is is a better asset to hold at this point. Um, so I'm just kind of curious, like let you talked more, you know, big picture. Like, let's talk about like the individual implications of this. Like, you know, we can talk about, you know, Japan has been doing, you know, no growth, no interest rates for 20 plus years, QE for 20 plus years. And like, what are the effects on the demographics there? Like, I, I just yeah. feel like uh, the, the second, third order effects on this kind of policy, it, it can go real deep. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, other examples are like millennials are like more millennials are living with their parents than like, like, I don't even know the numbers off the top of my head, but like people are priced out of real estate. They're over their eyeballs in debt um, and with student loans, which is just another, you know, second order effect of of perpetual credit expansion, right? Like, um, I also touched on this a tiny bit in the piece and I, I couldn't, I couldn't go more into this. Like there's an entire book on, on, uh, Jeff books, uh, Jeff Booth's thesis, the, the, you know, technological deflation, but like say education, the, the ease and access of, of education and information has gone basically to zero. Like, I guess just, just talking on this pod, like all the stuff that I've learned, I've, I've bought in a couple books and everything else has been free, uh, on, on Twitter and everything else. It's all there, but um, I was last year. I was I was paying, you know, tens of thousands of dollars for um, an education to learn economics. You know, to to learn at a this at, at a university, and so um, there's just this kind of broken and perverse incentive structure that that perpetual credit expansion, um, especially kind of when when it's backed by a, a state monopoly, um, you know, that will continue to just say, hey, like student loans, like. Um, you know, we, everyone needs an education as technology is like, nope. Yeah. All this stuff's free. Like go on Sailor Academy, go here, go there. Um, it's, it's all out there. So I think like there's so many different examples of like the broken incentive structure, um, that a broken money or, or like maybe, um, a mispriced money, uh, has, um, and it, yeah, it's definitely showing up, showing up all over, all over the society. So I think there's two directions that we can take this, but uh, I want to insert a new idea into the conversation. Like the long-term debt cycle really seems to also map onto this idea of like the fourth turning pretty well. Have you like thought about this idea of the fourth turning and um, again, like, you know, how that fits into where the money or and where the debt cycle kind of like plays into that? I've, I've, I haven't read the book. I've heard uh, Brandon Quidham. Um, I think I've, I've listened to his uh, article with, with Guy Swan on the Bitcoin Audible, and then I've, I've heard him on a couple of podcasts. Um, it's really interesting. I mean, 
there's definitely a lot of a lot of like things at play here um that like i don't i don't think i can can you know all put together there's so many uh different trends happening um i mean we're definitely at some sort of inflection point in, in human history um you know with with technology you know monetary systems uh just like um also like the sovereign individual where it's like you know uh the agricultural age the industrial age uh the information age like all of these things are happening at once and if you look at it with like a, a you know one inch view you, it nothing makes sense it's like pure chaos but you know if you kind of backtrack a little bit and, and look from above it's like well a lot of things are are changing all at once so um yeah i i i agree and i think it's going to be really interesting to like okay so we have this long-term debt cycle we have this like let's call it a fourth turning and then like maybe we have this super cycle where it's like the logic of violence because of cryptography and bitcoin is changing and that's all culminating to like right now so uh, i feel like there's a lot of forces that are going to project the world into a very different direction uh you know into the future and i'm kind of curious like what's your take, right? Like there's going to be a transition process. There's probably going to be a light at the end of the tunnel. All of us think that Bitcoin is at the heart of all of that. Like, can you just talk about like at the end of this long-term debt cycle and into this Bitcoin future, like, you know, what, what's on the horizon? Yeah, I think a lot of it just comes down to a basic incentives. Um, So like at, at the end of a long-term debt cycle, policymakers are are monetizing debt at increasing quantities, um, debasing the money supply. Um, the incentive there is to protect to protect your assets, to protect your your purchasing power in something that can't be debased. So, we're like in in uh, history, that's gold. Um, but in today, we're seeing um, gold hasn't moved in a year; it's trading flat, and Bitcoin has is up six hundred percent or seven hundred percent or something like that over the past year. Um, there's also um, you know, with with uh, the increasing um, what's it called the wealth gap, uh, there's there's more and more uh, calls for like some sort of wealth tax, right? Um, where you know, eat the rich has has grown a lot in in popularity and sentiment. So, what's the incentive there? The incentive there is okay. I'm going to protect myself in in you know, I'm going to protect my wealth in in cyberspace. You know, um, where no one can take it, where there's no counterparty risk, where it can't be debased. Um, I think that more and more people, it's still super early, but uh, more and more people are going to realize that um, Bitcoin is, is you know, there, there's really no alternative in, in terms of something that, you know, where, where you want to park your wealth, where you want to park your value. It's just, it just all comes down to incentives. Um, and so I think there's just, like, everything's really incentives. No one's better than, than your incentives. So um, with Bitcoin, it's just this, this natural, it's like the most pure form of economic, uh, incentives we've ever seen uh, the whole loop of of hodlers miners um, just the whole network itself so um, you know in a, in a world that's just kind of crazy and there's there's so much entropy um, bitcoin is just this kind of thing that chugs along and is a uh, you know a result of, of basic human incentives all right. I think we set up the scene here real nicely uh, that we have these long-term debt cycles. We know what the central banks are doing in response to that. We know the effects of uh, these cycles and the central bank actions on people, on society, um, and that Bitcoin is the answer. Now, I want to wrap it up. Last question. 
is um, where does the dam break first? Uh, if in, in a central bank, in a world of central bank competition or monetary convergence of things uh, with the US dollar being the world reserve currency, um, where, what breaks first? Do you think that there's gonna be like uh, a central bank in the, the Chinese central bank, the, P, the PBOC or the ECB or the, where does the crisis happen first? And who adopts Bitcoin first? And do you have any thoughts on that in, in general? Um, I mean, I think that there's definitely going to be um, some sort of like there's there's a game theory there between nation states and central banks um, where there's going to be a first mover. And I don't really know if I have a, a view on, on who that will be, um, you know, probably probably a smaller nation, I would say. But um, I think where the dam breaks is that um, there's. 100 trillion, I don't know, maybe 200. There's there are hundreds of trillions of dollars in, in credit obligations and that are dollar, euro, but mostly dollar denominated. Um, and I think the, the holders of these contracts are going to realize, and I think they're start already starting to realize it, um, that they're going to, they're basically signing up to lose their purchasing power. Um, and so I think that there's, there's going to be a sell off in, in credit markets um, and rates are going to, you know, start to spike as, as, maybe inflation picks up. And right now we're seeing inflation actually start to show up in the CPI gauge. And that's, that's a lot of, um, you know, supply chain constraints and, and all of that. It's not just, it's not just a result of, of more money, but um, it's definitely playing, playing an effect. I think, so the bond market in my, in my view sells off um, and, and there starts to be some sort of deleveraging event as, as people kind of realize that, Oh, the, you know, the risk-free rate of, of, 1.5% on the 30 year treasury or what, whatever it is, uh, I'm guaranteed to lose almost all my purchasing power. And so then the Fed, these, these central banks have a decision. They can basically monetize everything, you know, like the yield curve control, like QE is, is we're going to, we're going to um, put a fixed amount of money in like right now it's like 120 bucks, 120 billion a month. Um, and then we're going to buy at any price. Yield curve control essentially, um, if they're committed to it, is we're gonna buy, we're gonna pump uh, an undisclosed, and, and it doesn't really matter how much money, uh, as much as it takes to pin yields, to pin bond prices at a certain point. So um, that's essentially, you know, that's just challenging the market to um, really. That's saying, all right, well, well, we're a buyer at any price, and so if yields, if yields spike like this, as the, as the all these bondholders realize. Um, I'm going to get wiped out. I think what what occurs is central banks, you know, not wanting to be the the one where everything, you know, where it all collapses, basically monetize, you know, like the Fed balance sheets at seven trillion. I I think that this decade we'll see it in the twenty, thirty, forty, fifty trillion dollar range. I mean, I I think they're going to have to monetize nearly all of the sovereign debt markets, um, and and they're going to you know re-enter themselves in the corporate bond markets and all of this, and they're going to they're going to just monetize everything. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's where Bitcoin is, is trading in seven figures. And, and that's kind of the transition. Um, but that's just my, I guess I really don't know. I'm, I'm stacking regardless. Let's go. 
always be stacking. Um, I mean, that just statement, I feel like encompasses what Bitcoin is, is that there's uncertainty about the future and Bitcoin is certainty and I'm just going to keep accumulating. So I feel like that trend is only going to strengthen. And hopefully uh, as we transition to a Bitcoin world, there can be some more certainty. There can be some better forecasting because ultimately this is just about do humans have tools to measure and communicate value and and ultimately make decisions on that. And I think that that's really where Bitcoin shines um, and where the existing system is really faltering and crumbling. Dylan, this was an absolutely banger conversation. Um, you know, Ansel's damning me right here. Just, I can't believe that you're so young and you know all this stuff. Um, where can people learn more about you? Where can people find uh, your work? And I guess if you have a last word for our audience, um, what would that be? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, it was awesome to come chat. Um, you can find me uh, on Twitter uh, at BTCization, Bitcoinization. Um, I work for Bitcoin Magazine doing some stuff uh, uh, covering markets um, and doing some on-chain analytics and, and whatnot. So, yeah, just reach out over Twitter. Um, would, would love to have a chat. Um, and, yeah, I, I really appreciate you guys having me on. All right, Dylan. Thanks again to all the listeners. Go follow Dylan on Twitter at BTCization. Go read all of his amazing articles at Bitcoin Magazine. Follow me on Twitter at CK underscore Snarks. Follow Bitcoin Magazine at Bitcoin Magazine. Follow Ansel over at Ansel Lindner. And uh, what's your website? BTCMRKS.com. Bitcoinandmarkets.com. Oh, man, I, I should know this by now. God, BitcoinandMarkets.com. Forget what I just said. And meet all three of us in Miami, y'all. Bitcoin 2021, oh, yeah. best and biggest Bitcoin event in history. And uh, yeah, you can meet us all there. So uh, until then, until next catch time. you on the other side. Peace. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.